0: The key to unlocking the world's most significant scientific advances. Subscribe today at go.nature.com slash plus.
1: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com newsadfree free. That's Amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Why is like
2: so far? Like it sounds so simple. They had no
3: idea. But now the data's I find this not only refreshing, but but
4: at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, exploring evolution in a minimal cell
2: and hints of galaxy wide gravitational waves. I'm Sharmini Bundell,
4: and I'm Benjamin Thompson. Back in 2016, a team of researchers published a paper in the journal Science, describing an organism designed to have an extremely small genome, containing just 493 genes. In simple terms, the team behind the work developed it by modifying a strain of the bacterial species Mycoplasma mycoides, which already has a pretty small number of genes. The team went through its genome and deleted any genes that weren't essential to life. In total, they removed about 50% of the strain's genes, ultimately resulting in what's known as a minimal cell with a bare-bones genome for sustaining life. This work had an impact on Jay Lennon from Indiana University in the US.
1: Yeah, so the story, I went to a meeting two years after that paper was published and I heard the lead author give a talk on this. And I was blown away by the approach, the questions the analogies of trying to understand something from its simplest basis. But I had a question immediately that arose from that. And that is, if you create an organism and it can reproduce, but then you allow it to experience the force of evolution, the inevitable occurrence of mutations and damage that's going to arise, how does it contend with that? Is a stripped down, streamlined organism going to be constrained in how it responds to the forces of evolution?
4: And this is a question that Jay and his colleagues have been trying to answer in a paper they've got out in Nature this week. They wanted to know how this stripped-back minimal cell might fare compared to the non-minimal strain it was derived from, and what this might reveal about the process of natural selection itself. To see what they found, I gave Jay a call, and he explained why the minimal cell's genome could stymie its scope for evolution.
1: So the way you can think about this is that there's basically no degrees of freedom. You know, Every single gene in the genome of the minimal cell is essential for life, yet mutations can't be avoided, especially in the minimal cell where we've deleted some of the non-essential genes that can repair mutations and damage that's going to arise. But one hypothesis is that this organism is just not going to be able to contend with the inevitable mutations that are going to hit one of those essential genes.
4: And so there's this potential lack of wiggle room then, but to find out what's going on, you first looked at whether mutations, so changes in the DNA sequence, were happening and at what sort of level? So the mutation rates between the minimal cell and the non-minimal cell it was derived from. What did that show?
1: Yeah, so the reason why we did this is that the mutations are sort of the raw material by which natural selection can operate on. And so it was important for us to know how mutations were entering these two different populations. And there was a really high mutation rate, but it didn't differ. The effects of the synthetic streamlining actually didn't modify the, the rates of mutation or demonstrate the types of mutations that were arising. And the question is, how would a minimal cell with no degrees of freedom deal with that? And a prediction might be is that those populations perhaps could die. They might go extinct. Or there may be ways for the cell to adapt.
4: So you've shown then that mutations can happen in this minimal genome. But the fact they are happening is one thing. What's happening to the bacterium itself is another thing, right? And so you've looked at evolution in action then of the minimal and non-minimal cells. And that can be quite difficult to do in more complex organisms because you have to wait for each subsequent generation to happen. In this case, you've got through 2,000 generations of these bacteria. How long did that take, and how did you go about it?
1: Yeah, so we would take what we call the ancestors, so the zero-generation lines, and we would put them into fairly rich media that would promote growth, and those populations would undergo many duplications. and They reach high population sizes. These are conditions under which there's competition, giving conditions for adaptation. We would take a small fraction of those cells, and transfer them into a new flask with rich media and repeat this process where there's a transfer every other day. So we were able to track these populations of the minimal cell and the non-minimal cell for 2,000 generations, which equated to about 300 days in the laboratory. And so I think if you put that into human terms, it's something like 40,000 years of human evolution.
4: So you got these 2,000 generations then, What happened to the minimal cell during this time? then? what did generation two thousand look like compared to generation zero?
1: Yeah, so the first thing that we were able to observe from this experiment was comparing the ancestors prior to any evolution of these strains. So the initial effects of genome reduction were quite large; they made these cells sick. So we measured something which is known as fitness, which can be measured either as the growth rate or the competitive ability of these strains, and the effects of genome minimization made the cell 50% less fit. So it had a really strong negative effect on that population. So then, fast forward 2,000 generations, and when we measured the fitness of that organism at the end of the experiment, and we asked, basically, how sick is it now? And we found that it recovered all of those fitness costs over the 2,000 generations. So its fitness was equivalent to the original non-minimized genome. So the ability for this organism to readapt from the effects of genome minimization were complete and occurred pretty quickly.
4: You've got this result then and shown that the minimal cell can regain its fitness to an extent. I think you say in the paper that it doesn't necessarily overcome its small size. It remains quite weedy compared to its cousin. But of course, the non-minimal cell evolved and became fitter during the 2000 generations as well. And you peered into the genomes of these two cell types as the experiment went on to find out what was going on. What did you find in terms of how they were adapting?
1: Yeah, I think one thing that was interesting is that when we compared the rates of adaptation for the minimal cell and the non-minimal cell, they were pretty comparable. So they both kind of adapted at the same rates, despite the fact that the minimal cell had 50% of its genome stripped away. So that was curious because those rates were comparable. We thought, well, maybe they're adapting via the same mechanisms. Maybe there's certain mutations that have arisen that are beneficial. Maybe despite the differences in genomes, maybe there's a similar path to improvement in growth. And what we found actually was that was not the case. So even though these strains evolved at comparable rates, they did so via distinct genetic ways. The non-minimal cell had its own path to improving its fitness and the minimal cell evolved via mutations in other types of genes that were distinct.
4: Seeing these results then, I mean, you had this question, can the minimal cell do it, right? Can it Can it adapt? Showing that it did, was it a surprise to you? How did you feel about it when you saw that it was doing its thing and recovering itself?
1: Yeah, I think there were some surprises there because I thought that the ability of this organism to adapt to its environment would somehow be hampered. And what we found is is evidence to suggest that that's not the case at all, and that in some cases, this minimal cell actually evolved faster than the non-minimal cell.
4: I mean, I'm tempted to quote Jeff Goldblum's character in Jurassic Park, which is, life finds a way. Yeah. I mean, there was this hypothesis that this was so streamlined that evolution couldn't occur, but you've shown that really isn't the case.
1: That's right. And I think that's interesting from a basic evolutionary perspective, and it also has implications for thinking about how we should be developing organisms for synthetic biology. You know, the whole field is about trying to take parts and put them together so that we can, in some cases, manufacture products in sustainable ways. The question might be, are there certain rules or principles that we should be thinking about in terms of how we construct those organisms and how they may behave? We can create cells and be very specific about them. And we know what those basic elements are going to be. But the forces of evolution, these are all processes that
4: simply can't be avoided. That was Jay Lennon from Indiana University. To read his paper, look out for a link in the show notes.
2: Coming up, what hints of galaxy-wide gravitational waves could mean for our understanding of the cosmos? Right now, it's the Research Highlights with Dan Fox.
5: Have you ever found yourself using high-pitched baby talk when talking to kids? Well, now it seems that dolphin mothers do it as well. Adult humans often alter their voices in funny ways when talking to young children. This way of speaking, called child-directed communication, is found across many human cultures and is thought to help parents and other adults teach children how to speak. Scientists have noticed that a handful of other animals also change their sounds when communicating with their young. To see whether bottlenose dolphins do so, researchers recorded the whistles of 19 dolphin mothers that were caught and released over several decades, either with or without their calves. The recordings revealed that dolphins produced whistles with higher pitches when caught alongside their calves suggesting that they were using a dolphin form of child-directed communication. Given the similarities to high-pitched human baby talk, this way of whistling might also help dolphins to teach their young how to communicate. You can find that research in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States of America. Microplastics have been found everywhere from Arctic snow to common table salt. Now, researchers have found that these tiny specks are released in huge quantities when certain types of plastic are microwaved. As plastic degrades, it creates fragments that are invisible to the naked eye. Researchers measured the levels of these fragments that were released from two types of vessel commonly used to prepare and store food for infants. A reusable polyethylene-based food pouch and polypropylene-based plastic containers. Both types of container were found to release micro- and nanoscale plastic fragments when heated in a microwave for three minutes. One container studied released more than 4 million microplastics and 1 billion nanoplastics per square centimetre of plastic container. Even storing the containers in conditions that mimicked refrigeration led to the release of microplastics and nanoplastics, though not as much as microwaving. The findings mean that an infant weighing 10 kilograms would consume up to 1.4 micrograms of micro and nanoplastics per week if drinking water that had been microwaved using such a container. You can read that research in full in Environmental Science and Technology.
2: Gravitational waves were first detected in 2015 when two black holes collided, sending ripples in space-time across the universe. That momentous discovery was made using interferometers at the LIGO facilities in the US, which picked up the subtle changes in the path of lasers as the gravitational waves washed over Earth. Last week, though, after decades of searching, four separate research collaborations found hints of a wholly different kind of gravitational wave whose origins are unknown. These waves are monstrous in size and couldn't have been picked up with LIGO, so spotting them required a very different detector. Nature's resident gravitational wave superfan Davide Castelvecchi has been writing about this discovery and reporter Nick Petridge-Howe caught up with him.
6: Davide, hi, how's it going? Hi, Nick. Very well. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So, last week, there was a new result announced for gravitational waves. So, Davide, can you tell me what this result was? So,
3: I would go as far as saying that gravitational waves have been rediscovered. We have discovered gravitational waves that are from an entirely different origin and in an entirely different part of the spectrum, meaning at much longer wavelengths, and with an entirely different technique
6: that, when you think about it, kind of boggles the mind. Well, I'm preparing for my mind to be boggled then. In the past, we've used interferometers to detect gravitational waves. So how does this new detection method differ from that?
3: It's similar at the very basic conceptual level, because gravitational waves stretch and compress space as they pass through. In this case, though, they're not using lasers inside these arms of the interferometers, as as LIGO did. They are using the entire galaxy as a detector by seeing how the passage of gravitational waves affects the distance between us, the Earth, And other stars that act as beacons that are maybe tens or hundreds of light years away.
6: And these stars that act as beacons, like how are we able to use them to figure out that, you know, space has been shifted by the gravitational wave?
3: So the idea is that the astronomers are tracking very special stars, which are called pulsars, and they rotate, some of them at vertiginous speeds. So the particular stars that these projects have been following rotate up to hundreds of times per second. And some of these stars, they also spew out radio waves. And as the star rotates, this beam also rotates with it. And so if you're lucky enough, you can detect a little blip every time the star rotates on its axis. And specifically what these projects are doing, they're following the ones that rotate faster, which are extremely reliable cosmic clocks. And by monitoring them year after year and decade after decade, if you start seeing variations, you might infer that maybe the space that separates us from the star is
6: being affected by something, and that something could be gravitational waves. But as I understand it, this hasn't quite been confirmed yet. Could this be something else? The evidence
3: that was presented last week Is not yet at the level of statistical significance that would make people say, you know, we have the smoking gun, we've done it, we've nailed it. But at least for the first time, something that researchers have actually seen at least some level of statistical significance. And it's comforting to see that it's not only one collaboration, it's four independent collaborations.
6: They are seeing this similar signature in their data. And so is the idea then that all these groups' data will be combined to get a better picture of what's going on here?
3: Yeah, so the papers that were released last week, each of these four collaborations published its own results. But at least some of their data now is being pooled into one common set of data that together should be able to increase the
6: statistical power of the findings hopefully by next year. And so in the past, these detections of gravitational waves have been because of things like black holes colliding. Do we know what the origin of these very big wavelength gravitational waves that are potentially detected in these results, where they're coming from?
3: The short answer is no, because in the case of LIGO, what LIGO saw was a very specific kind of signature that is produced by two objects that are in the final stages of piling into each other and merging. In the case of the discovery announced last week, they're not seeing individual pairs of objects merging. So what they're seeing using these pulsars is the Earth moving as a result of gravitational waves, but in a chaotic way. It's not a, a nice waveform that you can say comes from one particular merger. So even if you are sure that you're seeing gravitational waves, this doesn't tell you what is producing the gravitational waves. So that's why I said the short answer is no. On the other hand, there are some very plausible theories and also some maybe less plausible or more speculative theoretical models for what could be generating these waves.
6: And so what do you think is the most likely cause of these gravitational waves? From what researchers tell me, kind of the standard
3: explanation or prediction is we know that galaxies merge over their history and we know that, most galaxies harbor a very large black hole in their hearts. And when two galaxies merge, each of them carrying a black hole, the two black holes kind of sink slowly towards the center of the newly formed larger galaxies. And at some point, they might start orbiting close enough that they emit strong enough gravitational waves that you can detect them. So because you have billions of galaxies, many, many of them have pairs of supermassive black holes in them, some of those must be emitting a lot of gravitational waves. And the combined hum from all these pairs of supermassive black holes in the entire observable universe together gives you this signal.
6: What does this mean for our sort of understanding of how the universe is then?
3: If it's confirmed, and if it does turn out to be from pairs of black holes, it validates Decades of theoretical work on how galaxies can merge and what happens to the black holes inside of them and can they get close enough to get to the point where they emit gravitational waves and then eventually merge themselves. This last bit was not at all obvious because astrophysicists say that it's quite easy to predict that the two black holes will end up orbiting each other, but they will end up orbiting each other at a distance of light years. But to get to the point where they make gravitational waves and then they start spiraling into each other and then they merge, that's not enough. They need to get, you know, hundreds or or thousands of times closer. And that is a lot harder to explain theoretically. But apparently, you know, if if the signal does come from black holes, it means that it does
4: happen.
2: That was Davide Castelvecchi. For more on that story, check out the show notes for some links.
4: Finally on the show, it's time for the briefing chat, where we discuss a couple of articles that have been featured in the Nature Briefing. And Shumley, I think I'll go first this week. And this is a story that I read about in Nature. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I chatted with Nick about efforts to vaccinate koalas against chlamydia. And this is another story in a similar vein about vaccinating an iconic Australian animal. But in this case, it's about vaccinating the Tasmanian devil against the deadly contagious cancer.
2: Right. So we have definitely discussed before that there's a particular cancer that these Tasmanian devils get and that's really harming their population, right?
4: That's absolutely right. And it's called devil facial tumour disease, OK? And it's killed up to 80% of oh, Tasmanian wow. devils since it first emerged in Tasmania, which is the large island southeast of mainland Australia, of course, about three decades ago. And there have been some worries that this could ultimately lead to this animal's extinction.
2: And this is something that's being somehow transmitted between the animals, right?
4: That's absolutely right. So this is a transmissible cancer. And from what I've read, these are super rare in nature. Only a few examples of this happening in different animals. And in this case, the devil facial tumour disease and the Tasmanian devil disease is transferred by biting. Okay, and at least these Um. enormous tumours on the animal's head. And they usually die in a few months and this is quite an insidious disease because the cancer cells they don't produce many of the molecules on their surface that kind of act as a flag to the immune system so they can kind of slip in unannounced if you see what i mean and so this new vaccine that's just starting to be tested is targeting one of the two forms of this disease
2: so how have the researchers gone about developing a vaccine that will target this cancer
4: Well, it seems like they've taken inspiration from some of the COVID-19 vaccines that were developed. Okay, so this vaccine uses a modified adenovirus, and this virus has been modified so it can't cause disease, but it makes the animal cells produce proteins associated with the tumour cells, but not with healthy cells. And ultimately, the aim is to make these tumour cells more visible to the immune system that can then go in and attack.
2: And what kind of stage are we at with this vaccine at the moment?
4: Well, still quite early, it has to be said. So on june the fourteenth, Australia's Office of the Gene Technology Regulator issued a license to the team behind the work to test the vaccine against this one type of the cancer. And it's been tested on twenty two healthy captive Tasmanian devils, okay. Now this is the first phase of that this is just seeing whether it's safe and whether it elicits an immune response and ultimately only animals that are free of disease and have no remnants of this vaccine left in them can be released back into the world so just that first step but i think the researchers behind it have high hopes but there have been some knockbacks in the past because another vaccine was developed but in 2017 a study found that it only elicited a strong immune response to prevent cancer in one in five vaccinated animals. But I think it did show that the immune system can get better at identifying this disease, which I think has given hope to the researchers behind this new vaccine.
2: And how are they actually able to test this one? How do you give a Tasmanian devil a vaccine?
4: Well, that's a great question. And it's one of these sort of hurdles that needs to be overcome as they move along. So at the moment, the vaccine is delivered by injection and in an oral liquid during this early Trial. But of course, that's ultimately not scalable to a wide, wild population. So the researchers need to come up with a plan. And yet again, they've taken inspiration from a different vaccine. In this case, a rabies vaccine that's delivered to animals in Europe and the US via edible. Bait. So oh. it could be that if the vaccine is approved, that they go down this road in the future. And this might be a more practical approach. And apparently they're designing an AI-driven bait dispenser that will just deliver the vaccine to the Tasmanian devils and not other animals in the vicinity.
2: Wow, this story has everything.
4: Yeah, there's a lot going on here. But fingers crossed, of course, that it does show some efficacy. And I think if it is safe and effective, the researchers want to ultimately develop it further so it targets both sorts of of cancer this type 1 and the type 2 right, yeah, and someone yeah. quoted in this article says that even if it only partially shields these animals from the disease it could buy some more time for them to breed which could ultimately boost dwindling populations and it's such an interesting one because these transmissible cancers as i say are so rare and i've read about examples in in clams and in dogs but to have two versions in one animal is spectacularly unfortunate but only time will tell whether this vaccine is something that can help these animals out
2: Well, I'm sure we'll be chatting more about Tasmanian devils again. I'll be looking out for updates to that and hopefully some progress on that horrible disease. I've got a slightly cheerier story for you now, actually a bit of a mystery. Some things that scientists don't know, which I always find very fun. And this is actually about a new species of plant, a kind of palm. And I have been reading about this in an article in The Guardian and it's been published in the Journal of the International Palm Society and in Plants, People, Planet about this new species that was discovered in Borneo.
4: Right, I've got a few palms on the patio here, but I'm guessing this one is maybe a little bit more interesting than them.
2: It is. uh, I was fascinated by this story because it's an area I didn't know about at all. So this is a species that has been known about for a while, depending on who you asked, which I'll get back to in a bit, but has only now been sort of officially described as a, a new species and the weird thing about it is that this species both flowers and fruits underground. And my favourite thing about this is from the top of the Guardian article, it says, Q botanists admit they have no idea how its flowers are pollinated.
4: Yeah, because flowers are those things that poke up and insects and sometimes other animals can come across and move the pollen from plant to plant to pollinate other flowers, right?
2: Usually, yeah. They come along, they pollinate them, those flowers then turn into fruit. And actually, sort of in looking into this, it turns out that there are other species that either flower or fruit underground, although not usually both. And there was one species that I sort of thought, oh, when I read this, of course, a plant that we often eat that flowers above ground, but then that moves underground to fruit. It's peanuts, a member of the legume family, the pea family. Ah, not yeah, nuts. of course. Bonus fun fact for today. But yes, it's really rare for a species to both flower and fruit underground. And even then in some of the examples, their flowers might be sort of just slightly underground, but covered by a little bit of leaf litter. Whereas in this case, this sort of completely overlooked by scientists, anyway, palm species has these flowers that are completely underground and then these bright red fruits. And they do know what happens to the fruits because they've seen bearded pigs eating them. Ah. So the idea is that The bearded pigs are probably, you know, moving around the seeds. And in fact, one of the researchers, an Indonesian researcher, noticed it because uh, the soil had been sort of dug up by boars and and then they saw the flowers and fruit and said, it was as if the boars guided me to find this palm.
4: Okay, so that's how the fruits are spread. But say, pollination is still a mystery.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And they haven't been able to sort of sit and watch and spend a lot of time waiting for a pollinator to come along. They found some sort of small insects around the flowers, but it's unclear. Most palms are pollinated by insects, but usually being underground, you would have thought that would be a barrier to pollination. So, you know, perhaps there is some particular kind of creature that sort of specialised in pollinating these. They they don't know yet.
4: And earlier on, you implied that Although this species has been newly described to science, it has been known about for a while.
2: Yeah, so it turns out that lots of local and indigenous people in the parts of the world where this grows snack on the fruits while they're out and about, and they're quite tasty. So certainly not a new or surprising discovery to them, but one that sort of seemed to fly under the radar of scientists until relatively recently. And as I said, this is the first time it's been sort of officially described. So there have been some Malaysian and Indonesian botanists and they've also collaborated with folks at Kew Gardens in order to sort of officially declare this a new species. But the fact that the indigenous people have known about this, the researchers in the paper take note of that fact and say this might be a bit of a, a wake up call for scientists to fully embrace indigenous knowledge in the global effort to catalogue all life on Earth.
4: Well, a fascinating story, Shamli. Thank you for bringing that one to the briefing chat this week. And listeners, for more on the two stories we've chatted about and where you can sign up to the Nature Briefing to get more of them delivered directly to your inbox, look out for the show notes for some links.
2: That is all for this week. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter. We're at Podcast. Or why not send us an email? We're podcast at nature.com. I'm Sharmini Bandel.
4: And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening.
0: Deep dive into the world of science with Nature Plus. From the vastness of the distant star systems to the intricacies of infectious diseases due to climate change, we've got you covered. Enjoy access to over 55 cutting-edge journals, breaking scientific news, and over a 1,000 new articles every month. Whether you're a seasoned researcher or just curious, Nature Plus simplifies complex studies. Plus, it's all available right at your fingertips on nature.com. Nature Plus, the key to unlocking the world's most significant scientific advances. Subscribe today at go.nature.com plus.
6: Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great
1: talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.